If you are new here tonight, let me add my welcome. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. Uh, We take the Bible uh, seriously here at Church by the Bridge. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's authoritative, it's powerful, it's the sword of the Spirit. We need to work really, really hard at understanding what the Bible says. Uh, My job as a preacher is simply to explain what the Bible says. Uh, It's not my ideas about God, it's God's ideas about himself which I'm trying to explain in words that will help you to understand him better. I want to encourage all of us here to be discerning, so don't just accept what I say because I say it. Look at the Bible and say, is that what the Bible says? And if you don't think the Bible does say that, please come and challenge me, please come and check me and just say, I don't think it says that. See, if I asked you this question, what is the, what's the high point of our service? What would you say? It's not singing, it's not the sermon. The high point of the service is when we hear God speak. And that happens when the Bible is read. You know, when the word of God is read. Um, what I want to do here tonight is to be like the, the Thessalonians who accepted the Bible as it actually is, you know, the word of God. And pray, Lord, speak to me through the Bible tonight as it is read. We're in 1 Corinthians uh, Corinth was very much like Sydney, a crazy city, lots going on. The church in Corinth is like the church in Sydney, crazy churches, lots going on. You know, divisions and fighting and squabbling and uh, who is better, I've got this gift, I'm better than you, I, I sing on the music team, I'm better than you. All this fighting that's going on in church. And Paul is basically saying, stop it. Stop. Be godly. At chapter 12 we said, uh, you're a body, all got different gifts, but every single one of you is important. Uh, Chapter 13, doesn't matter what gifts you've got, if you haven't got love, waste of time. And tonight we get to chapter 14. And if you look at your uh, Bibles, it's got this heading, Gifts of Prophecies and Tongues. I want you to grab a pencil and deface the Bible and just cross out that heading. It's not about gifts of prophecies and tongues. Yes, they are there. But that's not what this chapter is really, really about. Please deface the Bible, cross it out. It's not about gifts of prophets and tongues. The, the reason is that, that in Corinth, that was the presiding issue. They were squabbling over whether tongues was better than prophecy or, or prophecy is better than tongues. And, you know, there's a plethora of books that have been written about chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And I was thinking this week, you know, if the argument in Corinth had been about whether hospitality is better than administration, do you reckon there'd be a plethora of books written about that? Now, the issue is not the gifts. The issue is how the gifts are used. It's not about the gifts itself. It's about the people using the gifts and abusing the gifts. This chapter is really about church. What happens at church, why we do things at church, how we should do things at church. But he does focus on tongues and he does focus on prophecy. And so to help you understand the Bible as it is read, let me just try and define tongues and define prophecy just so we're on the same page when the Bible is read to us. What is tongues? Uh, The word tongue is literally language. Uh, In the Bible there are two words that are translated tongues. The first one is a missionary language. Uh, The word is xenoglossia. Uh, It means a known foreign language. So in Acts chapter 2, you have that word xenoglossia. It's on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are there, the gospel needs to go out, and the Spirit comes and he gives them a gift of a language. 
And so the disciples suddenly find themselves speaking Asian and Phrygian and Cappadocian, language they hadn't learned, so they can talk the gospel to other people who are there. And I have to say, I've heard of people who have had this gift today. They've gone on a short-term mission trip somewhere, they don't speak the language, and suddenly they can speak the language. God could do that. He doesn't promise you that, but he could do that today. Xenoglossia, missionary language. But the word in 1 Corinthians 14 is not that word. It's a word, uh, glossolalia. Uh, it means an unknown human language. It's not a human language. It's a, unknown, a non-human language, sorry. Uh, so you're sitting there and you're praying in English and suddenly you slip into speaking this, this language that, that you haven't learned and you don't understand, but it helps you to commune with God and it helps you to pray to God. And it's a good gift. It's a good gift that it helps you to draw closer to God. And that's the word that is used here in 1 Corinthians 14. It's it's a prayer language, a private prayer language. Now I know some people in this church who have have that gift. And they say it's really helpful for them personally, for their relationship with God and their prayer life. And that's great. I know other people in this church who, at points in their Christian life, have had the gift. God gave it to them for a season, it was very helpful, but they haven't got it anymore. People like me, I haven't got the gift of tongues. I've prayed for it, I haven't got it, but that's okay. It doesn't bother me, because it's not the be all end, it's not the greatest gift. I also know people in this church who have been really discouraged by the gift of tongues. Because they've been told by some church or other, or some Christian or other, that if you haven't got the gift of tongues, then you haven't been baptised with the Spirit and you're a second class Christian. That is wrong. This gift is a good gift, uh, it's to be used, it does exist today, but to be used according to the Bible. And we'll see what it says about that in our sermon tonight. That's tongues. Uh, prophecy is harder to define. Uh, prophecy, let me just say a few things, it's not the same as the Old Testament prophets. You know, they were men from God who heard a voice of God and spoke the word of God to the people of God, pointing people to Jesus, and they wrote down the Bible. But we've got the Bible, and Jesus has come. It's not the same in the New Testament today. What does it do? Uh, according to this chapter, it strengthens, it encourages, and it comforts other people. And so if someone claims to have the gift of prophecy, ask those questions. Is it encouraging? Is it comforting? Is it strengthening? What is prophecy? I'll say prophecy is a, a God-inspired utterance spoken with powerful directness and unmistakable relevance. A God-inspired utterance spoken with powerful directness and unmistakable relevance. So I think preaching can be prophetic. Sometimes when we preach we are prophetic. Uh, The Spirit illuminates the Word and empowers the preacher to understand, to explain, and to apply the word, and you're sitting there, and you're squirming, or you're rejoicing, and that is prophetic. Now sometimes I preach and I say things that I never planned to say in my study on a Wednesday. That is prophetic. But prophecy is not just preaching. Uh, prophecy is not just preaching. You know, when you talk about the sermon with someone, that can be prophetic. When you share a word with somebody over supper that, that God has challenged you about this, that can be prophetic. Uh, I don't know when you've had this, where you meet somebody and God lays it on your heart and you say, this person needs to hear this about God's character. That is prophetic. 
The Bible does talk about prophecy in that way. You can't get around it. I challenge people to get around this. Agabus in Acts 11, he was a prophet. He had a message from God to the church that a famine was coming, and it did come. That was God's kindness, sending a prophet. Uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, a word from an individual uh, saying, I know how Paul is going to die. That was prophetic, it came true. And God can, doesn't promise to, but God can and God does give that gift to some people today in the church. For the individual, for the church to be built up. But the important thing about prophecy is that we always test it. You know, it's not infallible. We don't blindly accept every prophetic word. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, uh, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Just think about that. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. When someone stands up with a a so-called prophecy, uh, don't just write it off and say, oh, he must be one of those nutcases who's predicting the end of the world again. Don't treat it with contempt. Listen. Maybe God is saying something to you. But then test it. Weigh it. Test it against the Bible. Ask the questions. Does it point to Jesus? Does it agree with the scriptures? It can't reveal something about God that he hasn't revealed yet. The Bible is a closed book. But prophecy can and does exist today. It's a good gift for God's people. They're my definitions. Tongues, the missionary language and the prayer language. And we're talking about the prayer language here. And prophecy, that inspired utterance that God gives to some people to build other people up. Having said that, this chapter is not about these gifts. But everyone wants to know what they are, so I've tried to, tried to tell you what they are. It's not about these gifts. This chapter is really about how should they be used. If you walked into church, if you walked into a building, and you saw people, you know, no order, no structure, no discernment, no love, just uh, selfish people making themselves feel good, Paul would say these words, stop it. Evaluate your meetings. Think about what you do and why you do them. So here's our big question for tonight. What should our gatherings look like? What should our meetings look like? What should our worship look like? Or let me make it really personal for you. Why do you come to church? Why do you come out on a Sunday night and gather at church? What do you expect when you get here? How do you evaluate as to what happens here? Those are the kind of questions that God is going to address in this chapter. Let's listen to God speak. Let's have 1 Corinthians 14 read for us. One Corinthians fourteen on page eight hundred and fourteen of our Bibles. I'll go to verse twenty five and then Anna will take over. Gifts of prophecy and tongues. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, 
What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say Amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three, should speak one at a time and someone should interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches, 
They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures, for the the men and women who down the years have translated them so that we can understand them. Thank you for preserving them. Uh, Thank you for the Bibles we have in our hands now and the money to buy those. And thank you now for the chance to unpack these verses and we pray that it wouldn't just be a a mental exercise but your spirit would powerfully be at work illuminating and transforming and convicting us. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to talk about a, a disease which I think is infecting our world. In fact, I know it's infecting our whole world. Um, I saw it uh, this week in a school. I heard about it this week in a workplace. I witnessed it this week in a marriage. I saw it in a family, in a home. And yes, I've seen it here in church. It's a disease which I've got, and it's a disease that you've got as well, probably. In fact, no, I know you've got it. Uh, It was brought home to me by a, a true story about a little girl who came home from kindergarten one day and she was playing with this matchbox that she'd done at kindergarten and her mum said, what's inside the box? And the girl said, oh, inside the box is the most important person in the world. And her mum took the box and opened the box and there in the box was a mirror. As every time the girl looked in the box, she saw herself and she thought, I'm the most important person in the world. And that's what her kindergarten teacher had told her. You are the most important person in the world. Uh, President Roosevelt apparently liked to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Just a centre of attention. And we all like it, aren't we? That disease is called meism. Meism or selfishness or self-centeredness. So, you know, a decision is made at work and the first question that we ask is, is not uh, what impact we have on the company or on the team that I work with. The first question we ask is, what about me? How is this going to affect me? And we've been asked to church, don't we? We ask, uh, was it good for me? How did I feel? Was I able to use my gifts? And when the church makes a decision, our first question is, what about me? How will it impact me? This was brought home to me very personally a few weeks ago where um, I was a groomsman for for Todd Neal who goes to our 5pm service and he emailed me through uh, the photos. And what was the first thing I thought? Not how beautiful does Carrie look or what does Todd look like, I thought, 
what do I look like in these photos? Uh, you know, and and we, we laugh, but actually we all do it. Because we, whole, we think the whole world revolves around us. It's called selfishness or meism. And I reckon that's the root of this chapter. See, the church, listen carefully, the church is not about you. You are not the most important person in this building. You don't come together just so you can feel good. You don't leave this building so that you can be built up. Church is actually about God and other people. And if you are, are built up, then that's great. That's the byproduct. Praise God for that. But actually, you should come to church saying, how can I encourage other people? What can I do tonight that will spur other people on? And how can I praise God tonight? You see, when you think about, about what we do here, what our worship looks like, let me ask you three questions. First one is this. Uh, is the church edified? That's the, that's the first question. Is what happens here building up, the word edify just means build up, building up other people, building up the gathering? That's what Paul says. Make sure that you, your speech is intelligible for the sake of the believers. Look at verse, uh, verse 1 with me. Uh, follow the way of love. What's the way of love? It's not thinking me and my rights and my gifts and what about me. What's the way of love? It's being other person centred. It's desiring uh, spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Why? Because prophecy edifies. There's a, there's a word that's repeated throughout this chapter. See if you can spot it with me. I'll just read a few verses. Verse 4. End of verse 4. He who prophesies edifies the church. End of verse 5. So that the church may be edified. End of verse 12. Try to excel in the gifts that edify or build up the church. Chapter, sorry, verse 17. You may be given thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Uh, verse 19, in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Or down to verse 26. End of verse 26. All of these must be done for the edifying or the strengthening of, not me, of the church. And do you get it? Uh, you're not the most important person. Church is not about you. We should be coming here to church thinking... How can I do something or say something that will encourage somebody else? What is it that I can do that will build up Mr. Jones in his relationship with God? How can I serve in a way that will help Mrs. Smith love Jesus more and serve Jesus more faithfully? What, what can I do, what can I bring to this gathering that will build up other people? You don't say, I'll, I'll be on welcoming, I'll be on PA, I'll be on supper, I'll be on music, I'll be on preaching, I'll, I'll have a tongue, I'll have a prophecy, because it makes me feel good. No, it's about building other people up. Now, how are you going to do that? In a word, it's intelligibility. People need to understand what you're saying. If people are going to grow, they need to understand what you are saying. Here's a scenario. Uh, you walk into a church in Corinth, or you walk into a church here in Kirby, and what you experience is just noise. It's a great energy, it's a great vibe. There's a hundred people speaking in tongues. The atmosphere is electric. What would Paul say to that church? Let's look at the tongues issue. Who do they really edify? Look at verse 2. Tongues are a good gift, they're a great gift from God. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue, he doesn't speak to men, but to God. It's that vertical, private prayer language. 
He's speaking to God. Verse 2, no one understands him. He utters mysteries, unknown content with his spirit. He say, tongues is great, but it's between you and God. We don't know what you're talking about. If you come to church and you stand and speak in a tongue, we do not know what you're talking about. It would be like me inventing a language called Dalism. And every week I speak in Dalese. And you might find it fun for, for, for two minutes. But maybe not, 30 seconds. And then you're going to say, shut up, we don't know what you're talking about. See, it would be me being selfish. And that's what's happening here in Corinth. They're coming together, they're speaking to but it's all selfish. Uh, verse 4, is it edifying? Verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue, yes it's edifying, he edifies himself. And that's a good thing. Don't mishear me. A self-edification is not a bad thing. But that's not the reason that you meet together. This is not your own private prayer and praise time. This is not your little party. So use your gift... Use it regularly, but use it at home, behind closed doors. Pray to your heart's contents in tongues. Uh, it'd be like me having, saying, I've got the gift of, of cooking or hospitality. And so I cook myself a nice meal and I come to church and I eat the meal by myself and don't share it with anybody. And it makes me feel good, but I haven't built anybody, anybody else up, have I? It's just selfish. And so is Paul saying that no one should speak in tongues? No, he's not saying that. Look at verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. It's a great gift, uh, but I'd rather have you prophesy, because that builds up the church. Uh, Verse 18, I I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. The man who wrote the Bible was an avid tongue speaker. But when it came to the gathering in the church, verse 19, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul could have come to Corinth and he could have babbled away in his tongue language. He would have edified himself. But he said, I'd rather come and say, Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour. Because that teaches you something. It's like musical notes. The musicians can be strumming the harp or blowing the flute, but it's just noise unless they actually play a melody that you can understand. It's like a, a foreign language. Verse 10 and that, there are all sorts of languages in the world. None of them is without meaning. This is completely impromptu. Uh, Robert, can you just stand up and speak in Norwegian? Just say something. Norwegian. Okay, speak in, speak in French, Susie. Okay, now, unless you speak Norwegian, unless you speak French, we're sitting there going, good for you. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> but I don't understand. Unless it's got an interpretation. And then it becomes like a, prof- like a prophecy, intelligible. See what you're saying? If you've got the gift of tongues, great, use it, but personally. Not in public. And I guess there's people there saying, but it's my gift and I can't help but use it. Yes, you can. Look at verse 13. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. So if you're praying, you speak in the tongues, good for you, but please pray for an interpretation. Why? So you can feed your mind as well as your spirit, verse 14. So you've got some concrete truths. Uh, uh, but if you're praising God, verse 16, if you're praising God with your spirit, how can anyone who finds himself among those who do not understand say, Amen? Since you do not know what you're saying. It would be like me standing next to you in church 
and you're having your little praise party with God and babbling in your tongue and I'm sitting there going, I am clueless as to what you're saying. But some of you might say, but it makes me feel good. It's not about you. It's not about you. What about everyone else? Is the church edified? What about prophecy? What about prophecy? You come to church, someone has a, a word from God. Is that good? Well, yes. Verse, th- verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men, that horizontal aspect. Teaching other men and women for their strengthening, their encouragement and, and their comfort. That's why prophecy is good. It builds us up. We can understand it. And if you're going to be passionate about something, friends, if you, if you want to have a, a, a striving and a, a, a be zealous for any one thing, what does he say down in verse 12? You're eager to have spiritual gifts. Well, try to excel. Striving gifts are, that will build up the church. I know I'm laboring the point. It's not about prophecy. It's not about tongues. It's about you and your attitude to church. Uh, do you come here thinking, uh, I, I must do this and I will do this and I want to do this? Why? To make you feel good or to build other people up. See, before you do anything or say anything or offer to help in any way, please ask, will this help other people know God better? That's the sign of a mature Christian. Uh, Verse 20, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Stop thinking like children. Grow up, he's saying. And I'm saying, grow up. I witnessed it yesterday. Uh, A four-year-old Complete temper tantrum, stamping the feet, saying, what about me? It's not fair. And we don't quite have the temper tantrums, but we're basically the same. We, we stomp out of church in a bad mood because we haven't felt good or we've felt left out or I haven't used my gift and no one's looking at me. And Paul would say, grow up. See, it's easy with this chapter to, to jump to the Pentecostals and say they're, they're wrong, you know, or hundreds speaking tongues at the same time, never test anything. Easy to point the finger at them. But what about us? What about church by the bridge? What are we doing wrong? I'll tell you what we're doing wrong. We rarely have opportunities for people to actually use these kind of gifts in a public gathering. Or we don't really encourage people to take the gift that they've got and use it to build other people up. And maybe with just uh, one speaker and, and an audience, we're just perpetuating this idea that you come and you sit and then you soak and then you go. And people just dash off at the end of church without speaking to anybody. How can you expect to encourage other people if you never just stare around and talk to people? But let me get really to the nitty gritty. Let me twist the knife a bit. What is your mindset when you come to church? When you walked out of your house tonight and you walked to build, into this building, what was your mindset? Were you saying, you know, Lord, if there's somebody tonight here who needs encouraging, show me that person. Lord, I pray that if you've got a word that you want someone to hear, that you would use me tonight. Lord, help me at supper time to look out for the person that I can really strengthen and encourage and build up. Or were you thinking, you know, I hope it makes me feel good. That's the first question to ask. Is the church edified? The second question is about the unbeliever. Uh, Is the unbeliever evangelised? See, church is not just for the believer. The expectation or the assumption is that there will be unbelievers present. So here's a scenario. Sunday night, uh, tonight, you know, it's raining outside. Uh, Prominent street, 
a woman walks past, hears the music, sees the lights, walks into church, not a believer. The question is, will she understand what happens in church and will she leave here hearing about Jesus? That's the question. See, what is people's biggest need? What do people need most in life? They need Jesus. We want people to be saved. They need to hear and understand the gospel. And this church gathering will either lead people to Jesus or by the way we do things and what we say will lead people into the darkness and into hell. And that's what Paul says in verse 21. An odd verse. Look at it with me. In the law it's written, it's in Isaiah 28, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Stick with me, they're hard verses. It's from Isaiah 28. Uh, God's people are, are in, in Jerusalem and uh, the Assyrians come and the Assyrians are speaking a language that the God's people just don't understand. And what God is saying here is, look, I've spoken to you before, clearly, in a language you did understand, you refuse to listen, you refuse to repent, you've got a hard heart, you've had your chance. And so he sends the Assyrians and they speak a foreign language, lips of foreigners, uh, verse 21, that you will not listen to me. They can't listen, they can't understand. And then he applies it to tongues, verse 22. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. It's not a positive sign, it's not a sign of God's love, it's a sign of God's judgment. It's a negative sign. See, we think, or some churches think, that if everybody is speaking in tongues at the same time, it will be amazing. And the person will walk in and they'll say, wow, God is among you, how powerful. And Paul says, no they won't. They won't understand what you're saying. In fact, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, won't they say you're complete nutcases? You're out of your mind. And here's, here's where the rubber hits the road. You bring your friend along to church, you've been praying for somebody, and they finally walk into the church building, and I turn up and I say, tonight we're going to speak in tongues, tonight, no sermon, uh, no songs, no Bible. We just have a, a half an hour of tongue speaking. No Jesus, no cross, no resurrection, no sin, no grace, no forgiveness, no eternal life, and your friend can't hear the gospel, your friend won't hear the gospel, and they leave here, and what have you done? It's actually a sign of judgment. Because they're in God's building, with God's people, and they don't hear the gospel. That's the sign. How dare these churches do this? They've got unbelievers in their midst, and there's no clear gospel message, because everyone's having their own little party with God. Is the unbeliever evangelised? No. But that does happen through prophecy. Verse 24. If the unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, talking about God in clear, intelligible speech, he or she will be convinced by all he's a sinner. They'll see God in his glory, they'll understand they're a sinner, uh, they'll be judged, and the secret of his heart will be laid bare, and he'll fall on his knees saying, God is among you. And that will save people. So what he's saying here is, stop, think, evaluate our meetings. And think about the songs that we sing. We don't just sing two songs because we enjoy singing them. 
Uh, we choose songs because the words teach us things and when an unbeliever stands there they can see Jesus and understand the gospel. Uh, think about the, the sermons you hear. Uh, ask the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly presented? Uh, think about the conversations you have. Are you pointing people to Jesus or are you pointing people away from God? And if someone walked to this door tonight and they're left here not having a clear understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, taking the punishment for them so they can be forgiven, so they can know God and have joy with God and have a certainty of heaven, that is disgraceful, isn't it? We're God's people preaching God's gospel to a lost world. It's not about you. <laughs> is the church edified? Is the unbeliever uh, evangelised? And lastly, is God glorified? Is God glorified? Orderly gatherings to reflect God's character. What should our, our gatherings look like? You know, uh, how do they reflect? What, what type of God do they reflect? Someone walks in here with they say, well, uh, God's a God of entertainment. Uh, God's a God of fun. Uh, God's a God of predictability. God is boring. Or maybe God is dead. How does what we do here reflect the character of God? He's saying here in this chapter, make sure that, that your worship reflects God's character. What, what you do, you must do in a way that reflects the God that you're worshipping. Uh, so the church services in Corinth were, were hardly boring. It wasn't one speaker and silent body of listeners. Uh, verse 26, uh, what then should we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, interpretation. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The problem was that everybody wanted to speak at the same time, and they didn't speak, they go off in a huff. When all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If there's tongues there, verse 27, not, not when, but if, verse 27, there won't always be a tongue, but if there is a limited number, uh, two or three at most, see, tongue speaking shouldn't dominate our meetings, uh, one at a time, spot that in verse 27, the concept of the whole congregation speaking all at once is not in the Bible. And one at a time, and that, that phrase shows the speaker has control. He or she can choose to sit or, not, or stand or not stand. No one can say, I had to speak. No, no, the mark of the Spirit is self-control. One at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, then, then keep quiet. If you haven't got the gift of interpretation, if you, you know there's no one here with that gift, then keep quiet. Stand where you are, maybe talk in a tongue to yourself and God very quietly so no one else is put off, but don't think that you can or should say it publicly. What about prophecy? Exactly the same thing. Two or three, limited number, an order, verse 30, if someone is speaking and the first speaker should stop speaking so the next person can speak, and then you weigh it, verse 29. Verse 29, others should weigh carefully what it said. See, some things that people say are really valuable, other things are complete garbage. How do you weigh a prophecy? Here's sort of five things you can think of. Does it glorify God? Not just a speaker, not just a church, but does it actually glorify God? Does it agree with scripture? Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? And is the speaker, him or herself, you know, willing and humbly willing to have their, their prophecy tested and weighed? If so, listen. And then who weighs the prophecy? 
and here's a controversial bit. And you're sitting there thinking, will he teach it? Will he skip over it? Of course I'm going to teach it. It's in the Bible. I might not like it, but I can't avoid it. Uh, verse 34. As in all the congregation of the saints, uh, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. For it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Do you want me to explain them? Um, <laughs> it's not saying that women must be absolutely silent. It's not saying that women have the gift of, you know, just miming for Jesus. You know, back in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, he said women stand up and they pray and they prophesy. They're valuable. They can do all these things. They can read the Bible. They can lead. They can sing. They can prophesy. They can pray. They can serve. They do all these things. Uh, he, he's not saying that that uh, that it's the women who are noisy and causing disorder. That's not the point. Remember the context of this chapter. He's talking about weighing prophecy. He's talking about tongues and prophecy. He's saying when it comes to weighing prophecy, testing a prophecy against the Scripture, that's the job of the elders. And the elders are male. Just, it's not saying all the men will wear the prophecy, just a few of them, but they should be blokes. And you're sitting there going, oh, but I don't like that. That's not fair. And we've moved on from that. We're in the 21st century. And then Paul says what he says to Corinth in verse 36. Well, did the word of God originate with you? He's really saying, who do you think you are, Corinthians? If you love God, and if the Bible says something you don't like, it's not, well, well, the Bible must be wrong because I don't like it. Now you say, you work hard at saying, why does God say this? Yes, I don't like it, but why does it say it? And I think the answer is in verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. God is a God of harmony, of peace, of order. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he says, when God created the world, there was order. You know, man, woman, animals. When God redeemed the world, when God, uh, in, in marriage, there's order. In, in a church, there's order. He's saying, there's just structure, there's just order. And that's a good thing. So make sure that when you gather together, what you do and the way you do it reflects the order of God. So does our gatherings reflect the order of God? I actually think verse 35 is a beautiful verse about inquiring of their own husband at home. I think it's a picture of, of the husband and wife who come to church together, who sit under the word together, who hear prophecy together, and as they, as they sit at home or they lie in bed, they talk about it. And they discuss the Bible, discuss the prophecy, and then they pray together. I think it's just beautiful. And the question is, is God glorified when we meet? Do we have a worship service that reflects God, a God of joy, a God of reverence, a God of respect, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of order? Again, let's not knock the Pentecostals and say, oh, that chaos is wrong. Look at ourselves. I do think we do this quite well, but maybe too well. Are our meetings so structured and so ordered that there's no room for spontaneity? Because in Corinth there seemed to be orderly spontaneity. 
a structure and spontaneity. Uh, not freedom at expense of order, not understanding spontaneity at expense of reverence, but, but structure with spontaneity. And I just wonder whether we're so regulated, as one person said, I read this week, that rather than unstructured spontaneity that creates bedlam, we're confronted with well-regulated order of worship that creates boredom. So we print a program of everything that's going to happen during the hour, the sequence in which it will take place, and once it's been printed it becomes sacred, and the likelihood of the spirits leading anyone to say or do something that wasn't anticipated on Tuesday when the order was planned is very, very remote. And that is possibly us, isn't it? That is possibly us. Oh, we have spontaneity. Uh, we call them open encouragements. I've decided to rename them open discouragements because we just sit there in silence and no one actually says anything. We do have those times where people can come forward and share or pray or, or give a word or give a testimony or give a prophecy. But let's think hard about how we can create more spontaneity. It is difficult the larger the church gets. But maybe use your connect groups. Maybe that's a good place to express these gifts and express spontaneity. But what changes should we make to this gathering so that God is most glorified and we reflect his character more? Order and spontaneity. That's a question you can think about. Email me about. Talk about what can we do here to express that spontaneity? Let's just think about our disease again. I've got it. You've got it. It's called selfishness. It's called meism. The world goes around me. I'm urging to change your thinking. The church is not about you. Is God, is God glorified? Is the world evangelised? And is the church edified? That's the question. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you you came not to, to be served, but to serve. And I pray that we would serve like Jesus. Uh, Lord, you came not to save yourself, but to save others and we pray, I pray that you would help us by our word to, to point people to Jesus so they may be saved Lord Jesus you you came not to be glorified but to glorify your Father in heaven and I pray that we will be a people who like that long for our great, our great God to be glorified Lord God please fill us with a deeper real understanding of Jesus and his glory of Jesus and his character that we might live like him behave like him, think like him gather like him pray Lord God that this church Church by the Bridge will be one where yeah, we are built up and we are seeking the lost but most of all that we are glorifying you as our, our God and our Lord and our King we ask that for Jesus' sake Amen